Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. I am your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. If Aunt Frances could see Betsy now, she probably wouldn't recognize her. Betsy is becoming a compassionate, kind, and very clever young girl. She's developing a real friendship with Ralph, whom she used to be frightened even to be near. And she is like a little mother to sweet young Molly. She's also very brave and resourceful, as her adventure on her birthday at the county fair demonstrates. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Understood Betsy Chapter 9 The New Clothes Fail The little girls went early to school the next day, eager for the first glimpse of Lias in his new clothes. They now quite enjoyed the mystery about who had made them, and were full of agreeable excitement as the little figure came down the road. He wore the gray trousers and the blue shirt. The trousers were a shade too long, the shirt a perfect fit. The girls gazed at him with pride as he came on the playground, walking briskly along in the new shoes, which were just the right size. He had been wearing all winter a pair of cast-off women's shoes. From a distance he looked like another child. But as he came closer, oh, his face, his hair, his hands, his fingernails. The little fellow had evidently tried to live up to his beautiful new raiment, for his hair had been roughly put back from his face, and around his mouth and nose was a small area of almost clean skin, where he had made an attempt at washing his face but he had made practically no impression on the layers of encrusted dirt, and the little girls looked at him ruefully. Mr. Pond would certainly never take a fancy to such a dreadfully grimy child. His new, clean clothes made him look all the worse, as though dirty on purpose. The little girls retired to their rock pile and talked over their disappointment. Ralph and the other boys absorbed in a game of marbles near them. Lias had gone proudly into the schoolroom to show himself to Miss Benton. It was the day before decoration day, and a good deal of time was taken up with practicing on the recitations they were going to give at the decoration day exercises in the village. Several of the children from each school in the township were to speak pieces in the town hall. Betsy was to recite Barbara Fritchie, her first love in that school, but she droned it over with none of her usual pleasure, her eyes on little Lias's smiling face, so unconscious of its dinginess. At noontime, the boys disappeared down toward the swimming hole. They often took a swim at noon, and nobody thought anything about it on that day. The little girls ate their lunch on the rock mourning over the failure of their plans, and scheming ways to meet the new obstacle. Stashy suggested 
Couldn't your Aunt Abigail invite him up to your house for supper and then give him a bath afterward? But Betsy, although she had never heard of treating a supper guest in this way, was sure that it was not possible. She shook her head sadly, her eyes on the far-off gleam of white, where the boys jumped up and down in their swimming hole. That was not a good name for it, because there was only one part of it deep enough to swim in. Mostly it was a shallow bay in an arm of the river, where the water was only up to a little boy's knees, and where there was almost no current. The sun beating down on it made it quite warm, and even the first graders' mothers allowed them to go in. They only jumped up and down and squealed and splashed each other, but they enjoyed that quite as much as Frank and Harry, the two seventh graders, enjoyed their swooping dives from the springboard over the pool. They were late in getting back from the river that day, and Miss Benton had to ring her bell hard in that direction before they came trooping up and clattered into the schoolroom, where the girls already sat. Their eyes lowered virtuously to their books, with a prim air of self-righteousness. They were never late. Betsy was reciting her arithmetic. She was getting on famously with that. Weeks ago, as soon as Miss Benton had seen the confusion of the little girl's mind, the two had settled down to a serious struggle with that subject. Miss Benton had Betsy recite all by herself, so she wouldn't be flurried by the others, and to begin with had gone back, 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 back to bedrock, to things Betsy absolutely knew, to the two times twos and the three times threes, and then, very cautiously, a step at a time, they had advanced, stopping short whenever Betsy felt a beginning of that bewildered guessing impulse, which made her answer wildly at random. After a while in the dark night which arithmetic had always been to her, Betsy began to make out a few definite outlines, which were always there. Facts which she knew to be so without guessing from the expression on her teacher's face. From that moment, her progress had been rapid. One sure fact hooking itself onto another, and another went on to that. She attacked a page of problems now with a zest and self-confidence, which made her arithmetic lessons among the most interesting hours at school. On that day, she was standing up at the board, a piece of chalk in her hand, chewing at her tongue and thinking hard how to find out the amount of wallpaper needed for a room twelve feet square with two doors and two windows in it, when her eyes fell on little Elias, bent over his reading book. She forgot her arithmetic. She forgot where she was. She stared and stared till Ellen catching the direction of her eyes, looked and stared too. Little Lias was clean, preternaturally almost wetly clean. His face was clean and shining, his ears shone pink and fair, his hands were absolutely spotless. Even his hay-colored hair was clean and still damp, brushed flatly back till it shone in the sun. Betsy blinked her eyes a great many times, thinking she must be dreaming. But every time she opened them, there was Lias, looking white and polished, like a new willow whistle. 
Somebody poked her heart in the ribs. She started and turned, saw Ralph, who was doing a sum beside her on the board, scowling at her under his black brows. Quit gawking at Lias, he said under his breath. You make me tired. Something conscious and shamefaced in his manner made Betsy understand at once what had happened. Ralph had taken Lias down to the little boy's waiting place and had washed him all over. She remembered now that they had a piece of yellow soap there. Her face broke into a radiant smile, and she began to say something to Ralph about how nice that was of him. But he frowned again and said crossly, Ah, cut it out. Look what you've done there. If I couldn't do nine times eight and get it right. How queer boys are, thought Betsy, erasing her mistake and putting down the right answer. But she did not try to speak to Ralph again about Lias. Not even after school, when she saw Lias going home with a new cap on his head, which she recognized as Ralph's. She just looked at Ralph's bare head and smiled her eyes at him, keeping the rest of her face sober, the way Cousin Anne did. For a minute, Ralph almost smiled back. At least he looked quite friendly. They stepped along toward home together, the first time Ralph had ever condescended to walk beside a girl. We got a new colt, he said. Have you, she said. What color? Black, with a white star. And they're going to let me ride him when he's old enough. My, won't that be nice, said Betsy. And all the time they were both thinking of little Elias, with his new clothes and his sweet, thin face, shining with cleanliness. Do you like spruce gum? asked Ralph. Oh, I love gum, said Betsy. Well, I'll bring you down a chunk tomorrow if I don't forget it, said Ralph, turning off at the crossroads. They had not mentioned Lias at all. The next day they were to have school only in the morning. In the afternoon they were to go in a big hay wagon down to the village to the exercises. Lias came to school in his new blue serge trousers and his white shirt. The little girls gloated over his appearance and hung around him. For who was to visit school that morning? But Mr. Pond himself. Cousin Anne had arranged it somehow. It took Cousin Anne to fix things. During recess as they were playing, still Pond, no more moving, on the playground, Mr. Pond and Uncle Henry drew up to the edge of the playground, stopped their horse, and talking and laughing together, watched the children at play. Betsy looked hard at the big, burly, kind-faced man with the smiling eyes and the hearty laugh, and decided that he would do perfectly for Lias. But what she decided was to have little importance, apparently, for after all he would not get out of the wagon, but just said he'd have to drive right on to the village. Just like that, with no excuse other than a careless glance at his watch. No, he guessed he wouldn't have time this morning, he said. Betsy cast an imploring look up into Uncle Henry's face. But evidently he felt himself quite helpless too. Oh, if only Cousin Anne had come. She would have marched him into the schoolhouse double quick. But Uncle Henry was not Cousin Anne. And though Betsy saw him as they drove away, conscientiously point out little Lias resplendent and shining. Mr. Pond only nodded absently, 
as though he were thinking of something else. Betsy could have cried with disappointment, but she and the other girls, putting their heads together for comfort, told each other that there was time yet. Mr. Pond would not leave town till tomorrow. Perhaps there was still some hope. But that afternoon, even this last hope was dashed. As they gathered at the schoolhouse, the girls fresh and crisp in their newly starched dresses, with red or blue hair ribbons, the boys very self-conscious in their dark suits, clean collars, new caps, all but Ralph, and black shoes, there was no sign of little Elias. They waited and waited, but there was no sign of him. Finally, Uncle Henry, who was to drive the straw ride down to town, looked at his watch, gathered up the reins, and said they would be late if they didn't start right away. Maybe Elias had had a chance to ride in with somebody else. They all piled in. The horses stepped off. The wheels grated on the stones. And just at that moment, a dismal sound of sobbing reached them from the woodshed back of the schoolhouse. The children tumbled out just as fast as they had tumbled in and ran back, Betsy and Ralph at their head. There, in the woodshed, was little Elias, huddled in the corner behind some wood, crying and crying and crying, digging his fists into his eyes, his face all smeared with tears and dirt. And he was dressed again in his filthy, torn old overalls and ragged shirt. His poor little bare feet shone with a piteous cleanliness in that dark place. What's the matter? What's the matter? The children asked him all at once. He flung himself on Ralph, burying his face in the other boy's coat, and sobbed out some disjointed story which only Ralph could hear. And then, as last and final climax of the disaster, who should come looking over the shoulders of the children but Uncle Henry and Mr. Pond and Lias all ragged and dirty again. Betsy sat down weakly on a pile of wood, discouraged. What was the use of anything? What's the matter? asked the two men together. Ralph turned with an angry toss of his dark head and told them bitterly over the heads of the children. he just had some decent clothes, first ones he's ever had, and he was lotting on going to the exercises in the town hall, and that darned old skunk of a stepfather has gone and taken him and sold him to get whiskey. I'd like us to kill him. Betsy could have flung her arms around Ralph. He looked so exactly like the way she felt. Yes, he is a darned old skunk, she said to herself, rejoicing in the bad words she did not know before. It took bad words to qualify what had happened. She saw an electric spark pass from Ralph's blazing eyes to Mr. Pond's broad face, now grim and fierce. She saw Mr. Pond step forward, brushing the children out of his way like a giant among dwarfs. She saw him stoop and pick up little Elias in his great strong arms, and holding him close, stride furiously out of the woodshed, 
across the playground to the buggy, which was waiting for him. He'll go to the exercises all right, he called back over his shoulder in a great roar. He'll go if I have to buy out the whole town to get him an outfit. And that whelp won't get these clothes either, you hear me say so. He sprang into the buggy, and holding Lias on his lap, took up the reins and drove rapidly forward. They saw Lias again, entering the town hall, holding fast to Mr. Pond's hand. He was magnificent, in a whole suit of store clothes, coat and all, and he wore white stockings and neat low shoes like a city child. They saw him later, upon the platform, squeaking out his little patriotic poem, his eyes shining like stars, fixed on one broad smiling face in the audience. When he finished, he was overcome with shyness by the applause, and for a moment forgot to turn and leave the platform. He hung his head, and looking out from under his eyebrows, gave a quaint, shy smile at the audience. Betsy saw Mr. Pond's great smile waver and grow dim. His eyes filled so full that he had to take out his handkerchief and blow his nose loudly. They saw little Lias once more, for the last time. Mr. Pond's buggy drove rapidly past their slow-moving hay wagon, Mr. Pond holding the reins masterfully in one hand. Beside him, very close, sat Lias, with his lap full of toys, oh, full, like Christmas. In that fleeting glimpse they saw a toy train, a stuffed dog, a candy box, a pile of picture books, tops, paper bags, and even the swinging crane of the big mechanical toy dredge that everybody said the storekeeper could never sell to anybody because it cost so much. As they passed swiftly, Elias looked out at them and waved his hand flutteringly. His other hand was tightly clasped in Mr. Pond's big one. He was smiling at them all. His eyes looked dazed and radiant. He turned his head as the buggy flashed by to call out, in a shrill, exulting shout, Goodbye! Goodbye! I'm going to live with... They could hear no more. He was gone, only his little hand still waving at them over the back of the buggy seat. Betsy drew a long, long breath. She found that Ralph was looking at her. For a moment, she couldn't think what made him look so different. Then she saw that he was smiling. She had never seen him smile before. He smiled at her as though he were sure she would understand, and never said a word. Betsy looked forward again and saw the gleaming buggy vanishing over the hill in front of them. She smiled back at Ralph, silently. Not a thing had happened the way she had planned. No, not a single thing. But it seemed to her she had never been so happy in her life. Chapter 10 Betsy Has a Birthday Betsy's birthday was the ninth day of September, and the county fair is always held from the 8th to the 12th. So it was decided that Betsy should celebrate her birthday by going up to Woodford, where the fair was held. 
The Putneys weren't going that year, but the people on the next farm, the Wendells, said they could make room in their surrey for the two little girls, for, of course, Molly was going too. In fact, she said the fair was held partly to celebrate her being six years old. This would happen on the 17th of October. Molly insisted that that was plenty close enough to the 9th of September to be celebrated then. This made Betsy feel like laughing, but observing that the Putneys only looked at each other with the faintest possible quirk in the corners of their serious mouths, she understood that they were afraid that Molly's feelings might be hurt if they laughed out loud. So Betsy tried to curve her young lips into the same kind and secret mirth. And I can't tell you why. This effort not to hurt Molly's feelings made her have a perfect spasm of love for Molly. She threw herself on her and gave her a great hug that tipped them both over on the couch on top of Shep, who stopped snoring with his great gurgling snort, wriggled out from under them, and stood with laughing eyes and wagging tail, looking at them as they rolled and giggled among the pillows. "'What dress are you going to wear to the fair, Betsy?' asked Cousin Anne. "'And we must decide about Molly's, too.' This stopped their rough-and-tumble fun in short order, and they applied themselves to serious questions. When the great day arrived and the Surrey drove away from the Wendell's gate, Betsy was in a fresh pink-and-white gingham, which she had helped Cousin Anne make, and plump Molly looked like something good to eat in a crisp white dimity one of Betsy's old dresses, with a deep hem taken in to make it short enough for the tiny butterball. Because it was Betsy's birthday, she sat on the front seat with Mr. Wendell, and part of the time, when there were not too many teams on the road, she drove herself. Mrs. Wendell and her sister filled the back seat solidly full from side to side, and made one continuous soft lap, on which Molly happily perched, her eyes shining, her round cheeks red with joyful excitement. Betsy looked back at her several times and thought how nice Molly looked. She had, of course, little idea how she herself looked, because the mirrors at Putney Farm were all small and high up, and anyhow, they were so old and greenish that they made everybody look very queer-colored. You looked in them to see if your hair was smooth and that was about all you could stand. So it was a great surprise to Betsy later in the morning, as she and Molly wandered hand in hand through the wonders of the industrial hall, to catch sight of Molly in a full-length mirror as clear as water. She was almost startled to see how faithfully reflected were the yellow of the little girl's curls, the clear pink and white of her face, and the blue of her soft eyes. An older girl was reflected there also, near Molly, a dark-eyed, red-cheeked, sturdy girl, standing straight on two strong legs, holding her head high and free, her dark eyes looking out brightly from her tanned face. For an instant, Betsy gazed into those clear eyes and then, <gasps> why, goodness gracious, that was herself she was looking at. How changed she was. How very, very different she looked from the last time she had seen herself in a big mirror. She remembered it well. Out shopping with Aunt Frances in a department store, she had caught sight of a pale child with a thin neck 
and spindling legs half hidden in the folds of Aunt Frances's skirts. But she didn't even look like the sister of this browned, muscular, upstanding child who held Molly's hand so firmly. All this came into her mind and went out again in a moment, for Molly caught sight of a big doll in the next aisle, and they hurried over to inspect her clothing. The mirror was forgotten in the many exciting sounds and sights and smells of their first county fair. The two little girls were to wander about as they pleased until noon, when they were to meet the Wendells in the shadow of Industrial Hall and eat their picnic lunch together. The two parties arrived together from different directions, having seen very different sides of the fair. The children were full of the merry-go-rounds, the balloon cellar, the toy vendors, and the popcorn stands, while the Wendells exchanged views on the shortness of a hog's legs, the dip in a cow's back, and the thickness of a sheep's wool. The Wendells, it seems, had met some cousins they didn't expect to see, who, not knowing about Betsy and Molly, had hoped that they might ride home with the Wendells. Don't you suppose, Mrs. Wendell had asked Betsy, that you and Molly could go home with the Vaughns? They're here in their big wagon. You could sit on the floor with the Vaughn children. Betsy and Molly thought this would be fun and agreed enthusiastically. All right, then, said Mrs. Wendell. She called to a young man who stood inside the building near an open window. Oh, Frank, Will Vaughn is going to be in your booth this afternoon, isn't he? Yes, ma'am, said the young man. His turn is from two until four. Well, you tell him, will you, that the two little girls who live at Putney Farm are going to go home with them. They can sit on the bottom of the wagon with the Vaughn youngins. Yes, ma'am, said the young man, with a noticeable lack of interest in how Betsy and Molly got home. Now, Betsy, said Mrs. Wendell, you go round to that booth at two and ask Will Vaughn what time they're going to start and where their wagon is, and then you'll be sure not to keep them waiting a minute. No, I won't, said Betsy. I'll be sure to be there on time. She and Molly still had twenty cents to spend out of the forty they had brought with them, twenty-five earned by berry-picking, and fifteen a present from Uncle Henry. They now put their heads together to see how they could make the best possible use of their four nickels. Cousin Anne had put no restrictions whatever on them, saying they could buy any sort of truck or rubbish they could find, except the pink lemonade. She said that she had been told the vendors washed their glasses in that, and their hands, and for all she knew their faces. Betsy was for merry-go-rounds, but Molly yearned for a big red balloon, and while they were buying that, a man came by with toy dogs, little brown dogs with curled wire tails. He called out that they would bark when you pulled their tails. And seeing the little girls looking at him, he pulled the tail of the one he held. It gave forth a fine loud yelp, just like Shep when his tail got stepped on. Betsy bought one, all done up neatly in a box tied with blue string. She thought it a great bargain to get a dog who would bark for five cents. Later on, when they undid the string and opened the box, they found the dog had one leg broken off and wouldn't make the faintest squeak when his tail was pulled. But that is the sort of thing you must expect to have happen to you at a county fair. Now, 
They had ten cents left, and they decided to have a ride apiece on the merry-go-round. But glancing up at the clock face in the tower over Agricultural Hall, Betsy noticed it was half-past two, and she decided to go first to the booth where Will Vaughn was to be and find out what time they would start for home. She found the booth with no difficulty. But William Vaughn was not in it. Nor was the young man she had seen before. There was a new one, a strange one, a careless, whistling young man with very bright socks and striped cuffs. He said in answer to Betsy's inquiry, Vaughn? Will Vaughn? Never heard the name. And immediately went on whistling and looking up and down the aisle over the heads of the little girls who stood gazing up at him with very wide, startled eyes. An older man leaned over from the next booth and said, Will Vaughn? He from Hillsboro? Well, I heard somebody say those Hillsboro Vaughns had word one of their cows was awful sick, and they had to start right home that minute. Betsy came to herself out of her momentary daze and snatched Molly's hand. Hurry! Quick! We must find the Wendells before they get away! In her agitation, for she was really very much frightened, she forgot how easily terrified little Molly was. Her alarm instantly sent the child into a panic. Oh, Betsy, Betsy, what will we do? she gasped, as Betsy pulled her along the aisle and out of the door. Oh, the Wendells can't be gone yet, said Betsy reassuringly, though she was not at all sure she was telling the truth. She ran as fast as she could drag Molly's fat little legs to the horse shed, where Mr. Wendell had tied his horses and left his surrey. The horse shed was empty, quite empty. Betsy stopped short and stood still, her heart seeming to be up in her throat, so that she could hardly breathe. After all, she was only ten that day, you must remember. Molly began to cry loudly, hiding her weeping face in Betsy's dress. What will we do, Betsy? What can we do? she wailed. Betsy did not answer. She did not know what they would do. They were eight miles from Putney Farm, far too much for Molly to walk, and anyhow, neither of them knew the way. They had only ten cents left and nothing to eat, and the only people they knew in all that throng of strangers had gone back to Hillsborough. "'What will we do, Betsy?' Molly kept on crying out, horrified by Betsy's silence. The other child's head swam. She tried again the formula which had helped her when Molly fell into the wolf pit, and asked herself desperately, what would Cousin Anne do if she were here? But that did not help her much now, because she could not possibly imagine what Cousin Anne would do under such appalling circumstances. Yes, one thing Cousin Anne would be sure to do, of course. She would quiet Molly first of all. At this thought, Betsy sat down on the ground and took the panic-stricken little girl into her lap, wiping away the tears and saying stoutly, Now, Molly, stop crying this minute. I'll take care of you, of course. I'll get you home all right. How, how, how will you ever do it? sobbed Molly. Everybody's gone and left us. We can't walk. Never you mind how, said Betsy trying to be facetious and mock-mysterious. 
though her own underlip was quivering a little. That's my surprise party for you. Just you wait. Now come on back to that booth. Maybe Will Vaughn didn't go home with his folks. She had very little hope of this, and only went back there because it seemed to her a little less dauntingly strange than every other spot in the howling wilderness about her. For all at once the fair, which had seemed so lively and cheerful and gay before, seemed now a frightening, noisy place, full of hurried strangers who came and went their own ways, with not a glance out of their hard eyes, for two little girls stranded far from home. The bright-colored young man was no better when they found him again. He stopped his whistling only long enough to say, Nope, no Will Vaughn anywhere around these diggins yet. We were going home with the Vaughns, murmured Betsy in a low tone, hoping for some help from him. Looks like you better go home on the cars, advised the young man casually. He smoothed his black hair straighter than ever from his forehead and looked over their heads. How much does it cost to go to Hillsborough on the cars? asked Betsy with a sinking heart. You'll have to ask somebody else about that, said the young man. What I don't know about this rube state. I never was in it before. He spoke as though he were proud of the fact. Betsy turned and went over to the older man, who had told them about the Vons. Molly trotted at her heels, quite comforted, now that Betsy was talking so competently to grown-ups. She did not hear what they said, nor try to. Now that Betsy's voice sounded all right, she had no more fears. Betsy would manage somehow. She heard Betsy's voice again talking to the other man. But she was busy looking at an exhibit of beautiful jelly glasses and paid no attention. Then Betsy led her away again out of doors, where everybody was walking back and forth under the bright September sky, blowing on horns, waving plumes of brilliant tissue paper, tickling each other with peacock feathers and eating popcorn and candy out of paper bags. That reminded Molly that they had ten cents yet. Oh, Betsy, she proposed, let's take a nickel of our money for some popcorn. She was startled by Betsy's fierce, sudden clutch at their little purse, and by the quaver in her voice as she answered, No, no, Molly, we've got to save every cent of that. I've found out that it costs thirty cents for us both to go home to Hillsborough on the train. The last one goes at six o'clock. We haven't got but ten, said Molly. Betsy looked at her silently for a moment, and then burst out, I'll earn the rest. I'll earn it somehow. I'll have to. There isn't any other way. All right, said Molly quaintly, not seeing anything unusual in this. You can if you want to. I'll wait for you here. Oh, no, you won't, cried Betsy, who had had quite enough of trying to meet people in a crowd. No, you won't. You just follow me every minute. I don't want you out of my sight. They began to move forward now. Betsy's eyes wildly roving from one place to another. How could a little girl earn money at a county fair? She was horribly afraid to go up and speak to a stranger, and yet, how else could she begin? Here, Molly, you wait here, she said. Don't you budge till I come back. But alas, Molly had only a moment to wait that time, 
for the man who was selling lemonade, answered Betsy's shy question with a stare and a curt, Lord, no! What could a young un like you do for me? The little girls wandered on, Molly calm and expectant, confident in Betsy. Betsy with a dry mouth and a gone feeling. They were passing by a big shed-like building now, where a large sign proclaimed that the Woodford Ladies' Aid Society would serve a hot chicken dinner for thirty-five cents. Of course, the sign was not accurate, for at half-past three, almost four, the chicken dinner had long ago been all eaten, and in place of the diners was a group of weary women, moving languidly about or standing saggingly by a great table piled with dirty dishes. Betsy paused here, meditated a moment, and went in rapidly so that her courage would not evaporate. The woman with gray hair looked down at her a little impatiently and said, "'Dinner's all over.' "'I didn't come for dinner,' said Betsy, swallowing hard. "'I came to see if you wouldn't hire me to wash your dishes. "'I'll do them for twenty-five cents.' The woman laughed, looked from little Betsy to the great pile of dishes, and said, turning away, "'Mercy, child, if you washed from now till morning, "'you wouldn't make a hole in what we've got to do.' Betsy heard her say to the other women, "'Some little one wanting more money for the sideshows.' Now, now was the moment to remember what Cousin Anne would have done. She would certainly not have shaken all over with hurt feelings, nor have allowed the tears to come stingingly to her eyes. So Betsy sternly made herself stop doing those things, and Cousin Anne wouldn't have given way to the dreadful sinking feeling of discouragement but would have gone right on to the next place. So although Betsy felt like nothing so much as crooking her elbow over her face and crying as hard as she could cry, she stiffened her back, took Molly's hand again, and stepped out, heart-sick within, but very steady, although rather pale, without. She and Molly walked along in the crowd again, Molly laughing and pointing out the pranks and antics of the young people who were feeling livelier than ever as the afternoon wore on. Betsy looked at them grimly with unseeing eyes. It was four o'clock. The last train for Hillsboro left in two hours, and she was no nearer having the price of the tickets. She stopped for a moment to get her breath, for although they were walking slowly, she kept feeling breathless and choked. It occurred to her that if Ever a little girl had had a more horrible birthday. She had never heard of one. I wish I could, Dan, said a young voice near her. But honest, Mama'd just eat me up alive if I left the booth for a minute. Betsy turned quickly. A very pretty girl with yellow hair and blue eyes. She looked as Molly might when she was grown up. Was leaning over the edge of a little canvas-covered booth, the sign of which announced that Homemade doughnuts and soft drinks were for sale there. A young man, very flushed and gay, was pulling at the girl's blue gingham sleeve. Oh, come on, Annie. Just one turn. The floor is just right. You can keep an eye on the booth from the hall. Nobody is going to run away with the old thing anyhow. Honest, I'd love to, but I've got a great lot of dishes to wash, too. You know, Mama. 
she looked longingly toward the open-air dancing floor, out from which just then floated a burst of brassy music. "'Oh, please,' said a small voice. "'I'll do it for twenty cents.' Betsy stood by the girl's elbow, quivering earnestly. "'Do what, Kitty?' asked the girl in good-natured surprise. "'Everything,' said Betsy. "'Everything. Wash the dishes, tend the booth. You can go dance. I'll do it for twenty cents.' The eyes of the girl and the man met. "'My! Aren't we up and coming?' said the young man. "'You're almost as big as a pint cup, aren't you?' he said to Betsy. The little girl flushed. She detested being laughed at, but she looked straight into the laughing eyes. "'I'm ten years old today,' she said, "'and I can wash dishes as well as anybody.' She spoke with great dignity. The young man burst out into a great laugh. "'Great kid, what?' he said to the girl, and then, "'Say, Annie, why not? Your mother won't be here for an hour. The kid can keep folks from walking off with the stuff and—' "'And I'll do the dishes, too,' repeated Betsy, trying hard not to mind being laughed at, and keeping her eyes fixed steadily on the tickets to Hillsboro. "'Well, by gosh,' said the young man, laughing, "'here's our chance, Annie, for the fair. Come along.' The girl laughed, too, out of high spirits. "'Wouldn't Mama be crazy?' she said hilariously. "'But she'll never know. Here, you cute kid, here's my apron.' She took off her long apron— and tied it around Betsy's neck. There's the soap, there's the table. Stack the dishes up on the counter. She was out of the little gate in the counter in a twinkling, just as Molly, in answer to a beckoning gesture from Betsy, came in. Hello, there's another one, said the gay young man, happier and happier. Hello, Button, what are you going to do? I suppose when they try to crack the safe, you'll run at them and bark and drive them away. Molly opened her sweet blue eyes wide, not understanding a single word. The girl laughed, swooped back, gave Molly a kiss, and disappeared, running side by side with the young man toward the dance hall. Betsy mounted on a soapbox and began joyfully to wash the dishes. She had never thought that ever in her life would she simply love to wash dishes beyond anything else but it was so. Her relief was so great that she could have kissed the coarse, thick plates and glasses as she washed them. It's all right, Molly, it's all right, she quavered exultantly to Molly over her shoulder. But as Molly had not, from the moment Betsy took command, suspected that it was not all right, she only nodded and asked if she might sit up on a barrel where she could watch the crowd go by. I guess you could. I don't know why not, said Betsy doubtfully. She lifted her up and went back to her dishes. Never were dishes washed better. Two doughnuts, please, said a man's voice behind her. Oh, mercy, there was somebody come to buy. Whatever should she do? She came forward, intending to say that the owner of the booth was away, and she didn't know anything about, <gasps> but the man laid down a nickel, took two doughnuts and turned away. Betsy gasped and looked at the homemade sign stuck into the big pan of doughnuts. Sure enough, it read, two for five. She put the nickel up on a shelf and went back to her dishwashing. Selling things wasn't so hard, she reflected. Now that she saw a way out, 
she began to find some fun in being behind the counter instead of in front. When a woman with two little boys approached, she came forward to wait on her, feeling important. Two for five, she said in a businesslike tone. The woman put down a dime, took up four donuts, divided them between her sons, and departed. My, said Molly, looking admiringly at Betsy's coolness. Betsy went back to her dishes, stepping high. Oh, Betsy, see, the pig, the big ox, cried Molly now, looking from her coin of vantage down the wide, grass-grown lane between the booths. Betsy craned her head around over her shoulder, continuing conscientiously to wash and wipe the dishes. The prize stock was being paraded around the fair. The huge prize ox, his shining horns tipped with blue rosettes. The prize cows, with wreaths around their necks. The prize horses, four or five of them as glossy as satin, curving their bright, strong necks and stepping as though on eggs, their manes and tails braided with bright ribbon. And then, Oh, Betsy, look at the pig, screamed Molly again. The smaller animals, the sheep, the calves, the colts, and the pig, which waddled along with portly dignity. Betsy looked as well as she could over her shoulder, and in years to come she could shut her eyes and see again in every detail that procession under the golden September light. But she looked anxiously at the clock. It was nearing five. Oh, suppose the girl forgot and danced too long. Two bottles of ginger ale and half a dozen donuts, said a man with a woman and three children. Betsy looked feverishly among the bottles ranged on the counter, selected two marked ginger ale, and glared at their corrugated tin stoppers. How did you get them open? Here's your opener, said the man, if that's what you're looking for. You get the glasses and I'll open the bottles. We're in kind of a hurry. Gotta catch a train. Well, they were not the only people who had to catch a train, Betsy thought sadly. They drank in gulps and departed, cramming donuts into their mouths. Betsy wished that the girl would come back. She was now almost sure that she had forgotten and would dance until nightfall. <gasps> but there she came, running along as light-footed after an hour's dancing as when she had left the booth. Here you are, kid, said the young man, producing a quarter. We've had the time of our lives, thanks to you. Betsy gave him back one of the nickels that remained to her, but he refused it. No, keep the change, he said royally. It was worth it. Then I'll buy two donuts with my extra nickel, said Betsy. No, you won't, said the girl. You'll take all you want for nothing. Mama'll never miss em. What you sell here has got to be fresh every day, anyhow. Here, hold out your hands, both of you. Some people came and bought things, said Betsy, happening to remember as she and Molly turned away. The money is on that shelf. Well, now, said the girl, if she didn't take hold and sell things. Say, she ran after Betsy and gave her a hug. You smart young'un, I wished I had a sister just like you. Molly and Betsy hurried along out of the gate into the main street of the town and down to the station. Molly was eating donuts as she went. They were both quite hungry by this time. But Betsy could not think of eating till she had those tickets in her hand. 
She pushed her quarter and a nickel into the ticket seller's window and said, Hillsborough, in as confident a tone as she could. But when the precious bits of paper were pushed out at her, and she actually held them, her knees shook under her, and she had to go and sit down on the bench. My, aren't these doughnuts good, said Molly. I never in my life had enough doughnuts before. Betsy drew a long breath and began rather languidly to eat one herself. She felt all of a sudden very, very tired. She was tireder still when they got out of the train at Hillsborough Station and started wearily up the road toward Putney Farm. Two miles lay before them, two miles which they had often walked before, but never after such a day as now lay back of them. Molly dragged her feet as she walked, and hung heavily on Betsy's hand. Betsy plodded along, her head hanging, her eyes gritty with sleepiness. A light buggy spun round the turn of the road behind them, the single horse trotting fast as though the driver were in a hurry. The wheels rattled smartly on the hard road. The little girls drew out to one side and stood waiting till the road should be free again. When he saw them, the driver pulled the horse back so quickly it stood almost straight up. He peered at them through the twilight, and then with a loud shout sprang over the side of the buggy. It was Uncle Henry! Oh, goody, it was Uncle Henry come to meet them. They wouldn't have to walk any farther. But what was the matter with Uncle Henry? He ran up to them, exclaiming, Are you all right? Are you all right? He stooped over and felt of them desperately, as though he expected them to be broken somewhere. And Betsy could feel his old hands were shaking, that he was trembling all over. When she said, Why, yes, Uncle Henry, we're all right. We came home on the cars. Uncle Henry leaned up against the fence, as though he couldn't stand up. He took off his hat and wiped his forehead, and he said, It didn't seem as though it could be Uncle Henry talking. He sounded so excited. Well, 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 by gosh, my, 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 by thunder. Now, and so here you are, and you're all right. Well. He couldn't seem to stop exclaiming. And you can't imagine anything stranger than an Uncle Henry who couldn't stop exclaiming. After they all got into the buggy, he quieted down a little and said, Thunderation! But we've had a scare. When the Wendells came back with their cousins early this afternoon, they said you were coming with the Vons. And then, when you didn't come and didn't come, we telephoned to the Vons, and they said they hadn't seen hide nor hair of you, and they didn't even know you were to the fair at all. I tell you, your Aunt Abigail and I had an awful turn. Anne and I hitched up quicker than scat, and she put right out with Prince up toward Woodruff, and I took Jessie down this way. Thought maybe I'd get trace of you somewhere here. Well, land! He wiped his forehead again. Wasn't I glad to see you standing there. Get along, Jess. I want to get the news to Abigail as soon as I can. Now tell me what in thunder did happen to you. Betsy began at the beginning and told straight through interrupted at first by indignant comments from Uncle Henry, who was outraged by the Wendell's loose wearing of their responsibility for the children. But as she went on, 
he quieted down to a closely attentive silence, interrupting only to keep Jess at her top speed. Now that it was all safely over, Betsy thought her story quite an interesting one, and she omitted no detail, although she wondered once or twice if perhaps Uncle Henry were listening to her. He kept so still. And so I bought the tickets and we got home, she ended, adding, Oh, Uncle Henry, you ought to have seen the prize pig. He was too funny. They turned into the Putney yard now and saw Aunt Abigail's bulky form on the porch. Got him, Abby. All right, no harm done, shouted Uncle Henry. Aunt Abigail turned without a word and went into the house. When the little girls dragged their weary legs in, they found her quietly setting out some supper for them on the table. But she was wiping away with her apron the joyful tears which ran down her cheeks. Such pale cheeks. It seemed so strange to see rosy Aunt Abigail with a face as white as paper. Well, I'm right glad to see you, she told them soberly. Sit down and have some hot milk. I had some already. The telephone rang. She went into the next room, and they heard her saying in an unsteady voice, All right, Anne, they're here. Your father just brought them in. I haven't had time to hear about what happened yet. But they're all right. You better come home. That's your cousin Anne telephoning from the marshals. She herself went and sat down heavily. And when Uncle Henry came in a few minutes later, she asked him, in a rather weak voice, for the ammonia bottle. He rushed for it, got her a fan and a drink of cold water, and hung over her anxiously till the color began to come into her pale face. "'I know just how you feel, mother,' he said sympathetically, when I saw him standing there by the roadside. I felt as though somebody had hit me a clip right in the pit of the stomach.' The little girls ate their supper in a tired daze, not paying any attention to what the grown-ups were saying, until rapid hoofs clipped on the stones outside, and Cousin Anne came in quickly, her black eyes snapping. "'Now, for mercy's sake, tell me what happened,' she said, adding hotly, "'and if I don't give that Maria Wendell a piece of my mind.' Uncle Henry broke in, "'I'm going to tell what happened.' I want to do it. You and mother just listen. Just sit right down and listen. His voice was shaking with feeling, and as he went on and told of Betsy's afternoon, her fright, her confusion, her forming the plan of coming home on the train, and of earning the money for the tickets, he made for once no Putney pretense of casual coolness. His old eyes flashed fire as he talked. Betsy, watching him, felt her heart swell and beat fast in incredulous joy. Why, he was proud of her. She had done something to make the Putney cousins proud of her. When Uncle Henry came to the part where she went on asking for employment after one and then another refusal, Cousin Anne reached out her long arms and quickly, roughly gathered Betsy up on her lap, holding her close as she listened. Betsy had never before sat on Cousin Anne's lap, and when Uncle Henry finished, he had not forgotten a single thing Betsy had told him, and asked, 
What do you think of that for a little girl ten years old today? Cousin Anne opened the floodgates wide and burst out. I think I never heard of a child's doing a smarter, grittier thing. And I don't care if she does hear me say so. It was a great, a momentous, an historic moment. Betsy, enthroned on those strong knees, wondered if any little girl had ever had such a beautiful birthday. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to Understood Betsy. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.